Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the debate, Modern America, What's Behind the Rise of AOC and the Squad, which took place at the Battle of Ideas Festival on Saturday the 2nd of November 2019. The debate is introduced by the chair, Tom Bailey. So thanks for joining so late in the day. So this panel is looking at the politician Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but more broadly, what it, uh, what her popularity in fame means for America. So in 2016, a not well-known senator from Vermont professing to be a socialist called Bernie Sanders became uh, an unexpected second favorite, at least, to winning the Democratic Party nomination. Since then, we've seen the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Congress, another professed socialist becoming an international superstar in the process. Meanwhile, a slew of other more left-wing Democrat party members have risen to the fore. So this session, I hope, will look at what's behind the rise of AOC, that's the acronym used for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and other similar politicians in the US, and what it tells us about the future of the Democrat Party and America more broadly. So to join us, we have on my immediate left, Dr. Albena Asmanova, who's an associate professor of political theory at the University of Kent, and the author of The Scandal of Reason and the forthcoming Capitalism on Edge. Next, we'll have Kate Andrews, who's an associate director of the Institute of Economic Affairs and a columnist for City AM. After that, we'll have Indijit Palmer on the right over there, uh, who's professor of international politics at City University of London and a visiting professor at the LSE. He is also author of the forthcoming book, Presidents and Premiers at War. And then finally, we'll have Nancy McDermott, who's a researcher and writer who regularly comments on women and the family and American politics. And she is author of the forthcoming book, The Problem with Parenting. Dr. Albena. The surprising rise of AOC and the gang was a clear blow to the neoliberal consensus politics that uh, the center-left and the center-right had engineered in the past 30 years. Um, Basically, disagreement on economic policy had vanished. There was an agreement among the main players that Capitalism is the only game in town. So people who venture to vote against that, both people or or for any maverick candidates who deviated from that consensus, be it Trump or um, AOC, they risked and they knew that that they were uh, wasting their vote. So the very fact that, that that vote was cast is telling of something. It's telling of something I like to call um, that people exercise their right to politics, their right to have their grievance enter the political space and be taken seriously. Uh, Basically, this is an, I don't know if it is a socialist position, it is certainly being labeled as a revival of socialism, it is clearly an anti-capitalist position. Um, And it is not the good old socialist position because uh, AOC has launched the Green New Deal. Now, the Green New Deal combines concerns with environmental justice and concerns with poverty, with with social justice that have for for a long time been at loggerheads. Um, the Green Agenda has been, since it emerged in the 1960s, has been, uh, 70s rather, uh, has been opposed not just by businesses, but also by the workers who are employed by those polluting uh, businesses, the businesses that destroy the environment. So there has always been a very strong capital labor alliance against the environment. 
that these new forces um, in Europe and America are, are um, facing. Now, the issue is how to break that capital labor alliance against the environment. And it seems to me that um, the, the, the radical left in the uh, US uh, and in Europe is doing it in the wrong way, and this is by resurrecting the old idea of the class struggle in their um, discourse, in their narratives, uh, their criticism of inequality and um, tax the rich or, or are, are vilify the rich. Why this is the wrong way to go? Because in order to mobilize social forces to do something both for social justice and for environmental justice, you need a very powerful, very broad alliance of forces. Every idea is only as strong as the social forces behind it. So um, in order to push for the, uh, for the Green New Deal, we need a very broad alliance. And fighting inequality uh, or, or, or resurrection of some sort of a class struggle is um, not going to create this broad alliance of forces. I'll, 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 I'll stop here because um, this, sure. this is my take on, on it. Sure. Uh, Kate? Sure, thank you. Um, so I'm going to start with, I guess, some, some positives around AOC and, and reasons that I, I see her climbing to the top so quickly in terms of certainly social media followers and, and fame. Um, and, and I've already said it. The first really is that she has come um, to the forefront um, in a relatively new age for social media. And um, I think a lot of us have just taken for granted now that your social media game has to be pretty good in order to be successful in politics. But let's not forget that in America specifically, Barack Obama, our last president, was really the first politician to break through on this front. What he was doing was thought to be very innovative and, and brand new. So she's not all that far behind. So I think she's, she's really capitalized um, in the age of social media where a lot of her older opposition or counterparts will just not be as well on their game in that area. Um, I'll come back to social media, though, because I think it's been a bit misleading in terms of her actual popularity. Um, another reason I think she's been very successful is because she taps into many serious unresolved issues for Americans. Um, uh, for all Americans, she taps into the issue of health care, uh, something that the Republicans and Democrats have been promising to solve for decades now, and neither's come through on it. Obamacare has become slightly more popular since it came in, but still really is not popular for a lot of young people. It's cheaper to pay a tax to not get health care. It's cheaper to essentially pay the penalty fee to not get health care than it was to actually buy health care. It didn't make it all that more affordable, especially if you were in that gray middle class area. So she's really tapping into that. Uh, and especially for younger people, but I would say that pretty much in America goes up to the age of 45 now, she's tapped into the issue of student debt. So many young people feel like they've been gypped by the system, which you know is very unique in America, where you can graduate from university a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Uh, you know, and and uh, people don't feel they're getting the education they deserve for that cost. They don't think it's fair. They can't see any situation they can get out of it. So she's tapped into that as well. 
And of course, she's a talented speaker, and she's representing diversity in lots of different ways, being a young woman, unmarried, an ethnic minority, um, and a time where, especially going up against the Republicans, they just haven't shown that same level of diversity. 41 of the 53 GOP senators are white men, for example. Now, that's not making a particular comment about that, good or bad, but when you look at the diversity of the American people and our immigration patterns as well, she's definitely tapping into something that a lot of people can resonate with because they just don't see people who look or sound like them um, in politics. Um, and I think plenty on the right are intimidated by her because they don't really know what to do with her. She's new, she's interesting, and they don't know how to combat her. All that being said, um, I think we have overestimated her popularity. So if we look at her district, the 14th district um, in, in New York where she won, uh, she won with 78% of the vote, sounds huge, but that is uh, very comparable and in line with the Democrats before her who won that district. It's a very, very left-wing district. Um, the man that she beat, uh, what, her, her margin for beating him wasn't anywhere near as impressive. It was about 57% to his 43% around there. Um, he had won that district previously with over 80% of the vote. So I don't think how well she did in that district reflects what's happening in the rest of America. And if we look at the midterm elections uh, uh, last year, we saw that it was actually the moderate wing of the Democratic Party that won the House back for the Democrats. There were a few more radicals that got in, a few more on, on further to the left, but actually it was that huge wave of centrist and moderate Democrats that won the heart of America, essentially and won over those swing districts. So while she's doing very well on social media and she's very popular in her district, it's not obvious that her policies would directly translate to the rest of the country where they are suggesting that something slightly more moderate could prevail. There's been a lot of criticisms of people treating her like a kid, like she doesn't know what she's doing. I'm sure that some of that is rooted in who she is and a bit of sexism, but I also think that on many accounts you could just say it's correct because she gets a lot of stuff wrong. Uh, on her 60-minute interview, she was called out for claiming that the Pentagon wasted $21 trillion, which could pay for two-thirds of her Medicare for All plan to provide Americans with universal access to health care, a figure that was just wildly wrong and misleading. And when she was called out on it, her response was that she thought that her critics were uh, not seeing the forest through the trees, why um, they were questioning why she, was, she didn't understand why people were so concerned with facts and stats over what was morally right. And of course, this position I do think is immature and can justify just about any position you'd want in the world. If you're basically going to say facts and stats don't matter at all, I can get things completely wrong, but I have moral superiority, well, you know, good luck to you justifying any position with that, but you more or less could. Um, you know, she's gone on to say that, you know, everyone in America has two jobs. In reality, it's under 5% of the American working population that does. She's made inaccurate comments about uh, the ICE, about how they're um, under obligation to detain 34,000 people in the evening to fill beds. Now, I'm actually sympathetic to her on the immigration arguments. I believe in a more liberal immigration system, but she was completely wrong about that. So she's bringing on a lot of criticism, um, I think because she's new to it, but also because she doesn't actually seem to want to root herself in the facts as much. She's very much pandering to that far left moral superiority um, kind of angle. 
And uh, I'm not convinced at all that it's going to play with the heart of America. I also think that her Green New Deal stuff, which would make it, um, uh, you know, sh she's been very open about the fact it would make it more expensive to fly, more expensive to consume meat, also does not play with the working classes of America, um, who might only be able to afford that one vacation every few years or so. Uh, and she's certainly not a darling of, of, of the DNC or the moderate Democrats in the House right now. Uh, so her rise is impressive in the age of social media. I don't find it all that surprising. But whether or not her ideas can actually translate into the heart of the Democratic Party remains to be seen. And I think that's where the real struggle will be. I think I take uh, quite a bit from what the previous speaker just said. But uh, I'd like to sort of uh, step back a little bit from AOC and the squad and to kind of look at the broader development, which they may be just the very kind of a tip of, uh, of a spear of. I think, in my mind, it is a major development in the United States and a shift in American ideological identity. America is a country about which people have written books with the title, Why Is There No Socialism in the United States? And now what we have is quite a number of important um, signals about the rise of socialism, or what is called socialism it may mean many different things, but certainly many people are calling themselves socialists. So, for example, YouGov, um, at the behest of a very anti-communist organization for the last three years, has carried out a surveys of opinion, particularly among millennials. That is, the people under the age of uh, around, what, 35, 40, and uh, down to about 18. And there are about 83 million such people in the United States. And this year's survey has just come out last week, and it found that 70% of millennials are likely to, or they're claiming they're likely to vote socialist. Uh, in the upcoming elections. In 2018, uh, the Council of Economic Advisers to the White House issued a report about the spectre of socialism in the United States. And the little preface at the beginning of that report said something like, 200 years since the birth of Karl Marx, 1818, uh, the spectre of socialism is haunting the United States. And then it's a major annihilation of the whole idea of socialism. Um, given the kind of character of the report that it was. So I would say that you can root this development in, in a number of ways, most immediately in the 2016 election campaign. Not only on the left, or uh, at least in the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders, but also within the Republican Party. President Trump, who became President Trump, candidate Trump, uh, campaigned very heavily on a very pro-working class kind of politics and social policy and so on claiming that he was going to redistribute power towards the ordinary working people, away from the elites. And that anti-elitism was previously something which the, the left largely monopolized, but it was used by Trump in order to win support away from corporate Republicans. And the, obviously the conflict within the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders representing a kind of class-based politics as well. And both of them challenged in their own way corporate power's legitimacy, and the legitimacy of big money in American party politics, such that both parties had become dominated by corporate donations, that the vast majority of money paid into the DNC and the Republican Party as well was coming from a very, very tiny proportion of the population, most, like, most linked with the big corporations themselves. But there was yet a deeper kind of a malaise, if you like, in regard to American power, its authority and legitimacy at home, but also its authority and legitimacy internationally. From the Iraq war, 
through Libya, through the, uh, in, a, in addition to other foreign policy interventions, Guantanamo as a source of major loss of moral authority in the United States, of the United States in the world. And then combined with the 2008 financial crash and the Great Recession that followed, and which then led to and fueled a galloping social inequality and increased levels of homelessness and poverty and loss of homes and so on, all of that combined in a way to create the pre-Sanders 2016 movements, the Tea Party on the right, which helped birth Donald Trump with his birtherist movement, but also the Occupy Wall Street movement, which gave a big boost to the left as well. So there are very large scale kind of a political effects of these deeper tendencies. And the United States is not alone in the kind of volatility of its politics, the rise of the right or the left, uh, unusual in many countries more recently. It's a worldwide phenomenon. It seems to be linked with a broader kind of global uh, globalization, if you like, of, uh, of the world economy, world society, and so on, which has very large-scale effects. And it's not just socialists. There's a brand new Congress, which is an anti-party or a non-party movement, asking people from Republican backgrounds, uh, as well as Democratic ones, but who've never stood for any, uh, particular party's elections before, and standing a lot of uh, candidates in the next election coming up. So what you've got is a large amount of discontent with party politics as established, focus around big corporate money and big money politics in general. So I would argue that this is quite an interesting movement in the United States. There's a growing polarization of left and right, and I suspect that this polarization is going to continue. I would argue that there are a number of promises and a number of perils which uh, the squad uh, may be uh, representing. I would say that it represents, to some extent, a new hope of reform and a challenge to corporate power. The fact that you have people who call themselves socialists or are very critical and they're in the Congress means you can question people who are brought up at hearings or investigations far more strongly, far more critically than you may otherwise do because you're not at the behest of big corporate money itself. So Zuckerberg's interrogation very recently is an interesting indication of that. They've also challenged the, the power of the corporate money to the DNC, the Democratic National Committee as well, and put a new energy behind a kind of anti-Trump movement uh, by saying that ICE ought to be abolished, that the racist and misogynistic tropes of his administration need to be challenged very militantly. And they've also brought uh, attention to the Palestinian cause uh, and the role of Israel in that area. So I would say there are a number of promises that they show and the number of things that they've uh, done which are very uh, kind of important steps forward in my view. But at the same time, they are targets for, they have a number of perils. They're a target not only for the Trump campaign, because in a way, being women of color, being women, uh, being socialists, self-identified, it's almost back to 1919 and the Red Scare, where an alien ideology with alien bodies was being uh, exported or imported into the United States, and it was like a virus or whatever, and that's the way in which he's projecting the entire Democratic Party now. So in a way, focuses his message in a particular direction. That's not so important as the fact that the DNC, the Pelosi's and others, have also targeted uh, this particular group of people as well, largely as anti-Semitic and so on. So I would argue that that's one major thing, but the biggest problem I think they face is that the character of their politics is very much parliamentary, is very much congressional. They are not linked to a mass movement. They have say very little about the strikes at GM and Ford and other places. They're not linked to a, 
a large-scale workers' movement at all. And I think that means they're going to become isolated within parliamentary politics. And the, the great thing about the party system in the US, and I don't say that because it's a good thing, but one of the greatest things about their longevity is their ability to swallow up third-party movements or insurgent movements within their own parties and to domesticate them. So my own suggestion would be that what we're likely to see is some greater criticism, but a likely uh, absorption of this kind of political trend uh, into the kind of dominant politics that uh, they are currently against because they will be largely incorporated and domesticated by it. Thank you. Nancy. Uh, AOC is interesting because she really kind of embodies uh, uh, some of the problems with American politics right now. Um, the 2016 election shows that um, we really have, not just in the, the U.S., but a bit internationally, we've really entered a new phase of, uh, of, uh, of politics where uh, the uh, bankruptcy of established parties is really exposed, just the, you know, the hollowness um, of the Democratic Party. Um, uh, and also the Republican Party, which, you know, which uh, is uh, one reason why Trump was able to come in and to come out of nowhere uh, and, uh, and take the nomination and become president. And in a, same, in a similar way, AOC really came out of nowhere um, and has been, uh, has been able to, you know, s suddenly become, uh, be talked about as the face and the future of the Democratic Party. Um, uh, and the the thing that strikes me about AOC is um, it's just is it's just the superficiality um, of uh, and the hype around um, around uh, AOC and around the um, uh, what she what what she supposedly represents. I mean, I agree with a lot of what's been said about um, uh, her. Um, uh, her constituency really not being uh, the people she's representing in uh, in New York, but really being sort of a creation of of, of Twitter. Um, her constitu constituency is uh, is social media, but I <clears throat> but I I disagree uh, with the uh, with the idea that she represents anything more than uh, just a a sort of attempt by the Democratic Party to find a new way of modernizing itself and of appealing to younger people. Um, I mean, it's striking to me that if you, if you talk to normal people about her, um, she's not all that popular with working class people. She's not all that popular with you know the man on the street. But the people who she is really popular with are Democratic Party activists, um, particularly middle-aged women, kind of um, uh, based in the suburbs, who think that she's you know absolutely just wonderful, and uh, and represents the the uh, future of the Democratic Party. Um, and <clears throat> I I I think that we need to be very skeptical about. Uh, about the idea that she represents uh, really anything to do with um, with an, a genuine opposition, uh, because essentially, if you look at what she's what she's putting forward, I don't think she's she's actually speaking to the uh, concerns of the majority of the American public. I think what she articulates is she articulates what um, democratic activists. 
uh, think are the concerns of, uh, of, the, of, of the American people. Um, you know, so for example, uh, the, um, uh, if you take some of the things that she's put forward, the Green New Deal, for example, I mean, what she doesn't appreciate um, is that the Green New Deal would put a lot of people out of work. Um, it would, uh, it would, it, it's, it's anti-growth, um, it's uh, anti-consumption, and those are things that, you know, if we really wanted to, to revitalize the American economy um, and be able to create a future that could appeal to uh, people uh, beyond the elite, that's something that you, that you would need to, to pay attention to. Um, I guess the, 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 the frustrating thing is that the good thing about AOC is that it shows that politics can be unpredictable and that it is possible for someone who is um, outside the establishment um, to to be able to come in and to be able to establish themselves. But the, the, the problem with it is that she still doesn't really represent uh, the voice of mainstream America. Um, and, and it's frustrating because it's like, it's like you can see the potential for something new in her, but you can also see that um, that the majority of people don't really have a voice, um, and that uh, you know what's being what's being uh, put forward uh, as their uh, what, what what she's being portrayed at um, is not really um, uh, something that would appeal to the uh, majority of Americans. Um, I think I'm going to leave it there. Good, thanks. <laughs> Uh, so we'll come out to the audience now um, for questions, disagreements, comments. So um, is, there, is there any prospect of uh, AOC being the next kind of, in the next generation, obviously not the, the upcoming uh, round of elections, but in the future, is there, is, do, do the panel think there's any possibility of that being the future of the Democratic Party? Thanks. Yeah. Um, Josh, Nico, um, forgive me because I'm a layman when it comes to um, US politics, but what seems to characterize uh, where we are now and predates Trump is this extreme partisanship and uh, more so even than we see in the UK and other, other countries. And um, why aren't we seeing from the Democrats figures like um, the Republican Brant, Vince Patrick, um, who has uh, sponsored a, a, a bill, a, a bipartisan bill on the, on the carbon tax, um, and, and an effort to, um, uh, you know, understand uh, those concerns of Midwest voters and others uh, that led to the defeat in 2016. I just wanted to sort of draw a comparison between uh, AOC and Trump. Interestingly, Mike Senovich and Scott Adams, two people that often talk about persuasion, really, really rate Trump and actually forecast his election uh, victory years out. They have the same opinion of AOC. They think she's absolutely a superstar. I mean, the fact that we're here in London talking about a congresswoman is remarkable. I don't think there's any MP um, in Britain who would be talked about in America. Maybe the prime minister, at best, with people who have an interest in... Um, 
British, British politics. And so while she doesn't have a movement in the same classical sense of uh, the unions um, and, you know, factory stuff, nor did Trump. So that's not necessarily a, a blocker for success. I mean, I'm sceptical of her ability to appeal to middle America, but she could actually be potentially, in 20 years' time, the Democratic uh, candidate for presidency on the, on, the, on the basis of just her persuasion, because no one really cares about facts um, at the margins, I actually think. Um, it's, it's, it's all about direction of travel and how people, people uh, feel. No one's sitting there going uh, about the Green New Deal going, oh, well, look at all this technical stuff. We don't have enough engineers. No one's making that, that, you know, that comment. You either instinctively think it's a load of rubbish or you instinctively think it's uh, really good. And she actually manages to frame that um, in a really positive way. So I think she is potentially uh, you know, a megastar. Um, I want to pick up on the point that she's not speaking for middle, middle America. And maybe if you could talk more about that a little bit. Is it, the, is it the issues that she's selected? Is it her style? Is it the fact that she's still pretty young and it's not really focused on details at this point? Because it seems like the issues themselves could be framed and in fact are being framed by some of the more um, middle of the road candidates as crucial to America. She's talking about healthcare, she's talking about the environment, she's talking about the economy. So, so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, is this a matter of style? Is it a matter of her, um, her newness and her approach? Is it, is it a reaction to her? And will that change over time? Or is it a reaction to the issues she's selecting? Thanks. And um, yeah, so there's been a, an emerging kind of reaction from mainly right-wing voters and governments to characterize environmentalists uh, as being part of watermelon politics. So this concept, uh, concept that environmentalists are uh, green on the outside and red on the inside. So they're using environmentalism as a kind of mechanism to smuggle socialist concerns through into policy. Is there a danger that by explicitly linking the two in the Green New Deal, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is actually feeding into uh, stereotypes and concepts like that and actually devaluing the nature of her environmental message uh, by associating it explicitly with socialism? Thanks. Uh, I'll come to the panel now. Well, um, on the question of middle America, I mean, I think, I think, um, I think the, 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 the problem is, or well, part of the problem is that um, AOC is essentially, um, uh, is, is it, is it, it, her politics are essentially identity politics. Um, and I think that um, that's not enough to unite the country. I mean, you have to have something um, that is not based on who you are, but that can articulate a vision of where you want to go. Um, and that has, you know, that has something uh, for everyone. And that's a weakness that is, is, is kind of widespread throughout the Democratic Party. It's not just AOC. She's just the perky face of it. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I can't prove this, but um, just, in, uh, just in talking to people and to um, I just, I, I, I just get the sense that there is potential uh, for something else because people are, you know, people are kind of desperate. They do want something different, um, and I and I think that the problem is is that what AOC is for most people it's just more of the same. It's more identity politics. It's um, uh, it's it's policies that there's that they're presented as if you know, these. Of course, these should appeal to you, but 
they don't really because people have more uh, more pressing concerns. Um, Thanks. Okay. I think the comparison between Trump and AOC is really good. Um, she was a bartender, he was a multimillionaire real estate mongol, but they were both political outsiders that really don't fit into the parties that they've come to dominate, at least in terms of the narrative. Right? AOC has not taken over uh, the Democratic Party in the way that Donald Trump has the Republican Party, but the narrative and the media around it, that sort of, uh, that, that debate that's happening, they've both been hugely influential in. And they're both benefiting from the age of social media where you can say things like fake news and alternative facts and get away with it. I think they both fundamentally lack substance, where this is um, already proving difficult for Trump and I think will prove more difficult for AOC down the line is that if you don't have that substance or you don't get it really quick, people start to see through you. And because she's come in at age 29, Trump actually came in when he became president of the United States, which is, you know, ex extremely rare thing to happen. There's a lot more time to pick holes in her narrative. Um, in terms of being the future of, of the Democratic Party, a lot of that depends on where it goes. But as I said, I mean, it, it was the moderates in 2018 who brought the House back for the Democrats. And if you look at those key swing states, which haven't changed all that dramatically um, in decades now, although 2016 was a big upset, um, and you look at areas like Florida, which has say, a lot of social conservatives, or you now look at areas like the Rust Belt that has a lot of working class people scared to lose her jobs. I would argue that in terms of being the future, the swing areas that matter in elections uh, do not favor AOC. So if we were to ever move away from the electoral college, which I personally hope we don't, and move to a popular vote, Maybe then, you know, in California and, and New York, turning out the vote for AOC might prove very fruitful. But in terms of sending her to rural Pennsylvania to talk about the Green New Deal and how it's really important that we take away these people's jobs overnight to save the planet, you know, even if, even if you think that is the solution, that doesn't win votes. Um, so uh, unless she gets more substance or is able to figure out a more holistic way to paint her vision that's more inclusive to those people, it's not obvious to me at all that she would be the future. Thanks. Indajit? Um, I think if we focus the discussion entirely on Cortez, I think we, we end up then talking only about the politics of a particular personality. And I would say that if we, looked, if we talked about, say, the politics of Bernie Sanders, I think we might get a better idea about the power of this kind of uh, leftward drift towards a kind of regulated capitalism. It's not even social democracy in the European sense. It doesn't go into nationalization, state ownership, and that kind of thing. But when we look at, say, Bernie Sanders and the impact he had in 2016 and has had since, and how that's impacted on Elizabeth Warren, so I think we get an idea about what a candidate who may not be very attractive to so-called middle America, which I would challenge as a concept, because I'm not sure there is any middle <laughs> left in the United States anymore, that what we've got is a very large amount of discontent with Republican voters saying they would be happy to vote for a candidate like Sanders should they, should they have a straight-up choice. So what you've got is a very deep problem of legitimacy in the United States. AOC happens to be one particular individual. Whether or not she has a future in the party in the next 10, 20, 30 years, nobody can tell. But the fact that she has been elected, the fact that she has quite a following, the fact that Bernie Sanders has trailed a kind of a blazed a trail for the last several years, 
I think it's had a broader effect on the politics of the, the broader left, and I think that's what we need to be looking out for. But the peril of that movement is it is a movement of the elite plus a few more. It's not a movement of ordinary working people which has any traction. So when, even when you look at the politics of Sanders, he can go to Detroit or somewhere nearby uh, a car factory and not even mention the fact that the GM workers, 49,000 of them, have been on strike for several weeks. And I think that is the big problem. They're not linked. And in that regard, AOC, Sanders and others part company with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, for all his other problems and issues and whatever, the fact is he has a big connection with people right in the heartlands of right around the country. His rallies still draw a large number of people. He is actually trying to build an extra parliamentary movement, which I think he wants to continue much further on. He is from slightly outside of the corporate, sorry, the uh, political elite, and I think he's trying to build a different kind of base. I, my, my view is the AOCs and others could take a leaf out of that book and actually build a broader movement as well because otherwise they're going to be domesticated. So she could end up as leader of the Democratic Party in 20 years' time, but I guarantee you her whatever she has of class politics will have disappeared. Her identity politics will be right top front and center, and she'll be part of the polarization, which we've already seen, of a kind of white identity nationalism and the rest of America, uh, and a kind of rump Dem a Republican Party with uh, against a, an identity-oriented Democratic Party, which will not satisfy a large number of people whose economic position is so bad, so bad and tends to be, seems to be getting worse. Thank you. Uh, Abena? Yes, <clears throat> I just want to um, maybe correct something um, that uh, Interjit has said, <clears throat> that AOC is a sign of the polarization of left and right in the US. Seems to me that actually the polarization is between the far left and far right on the one side, or the periphery on the one side, and the center on the other, because there is more common uh, between uh, AOC and Trump than between AOC and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, so the, wh what is interesting that's going on there is that there is a discontent on, on the fringes of society uh, versus those who have been profiting and continue to profit from you know, the corporate investment in politics. So um, the problem is to, you know, what, what, what to do with that polarization, which is not represented in, in any party positions. And then the big mark of AOC and, and Sanders is to have shifted not only the discourse of the Democratic Party to the left, but also the whole political spectrum more to the left. As, as we hear more and more uh, Republican voices uh, concerned with, with the cost of education, with the cost of health care, with even gun control. So there has been an impact on the whole uh, political <coughs> um, you know, set of concerns that are addressed by parties. And so heads off to this. About the red and the green, that's very tricky. And all um, the green parties are aware that they're alienating electorates um, with a costly green agenda because uh, as, as in, in, in you know, the kind of the workerist left, 
people often say there is just one worse thing uh, than to be exploited, and this is not to be exploited. So the concern with jobs is very real one. And when uh, the AOC, uh, we, we, we read in the um, Green New Deal that this deal is going to bring unprecedented prosperity, although it is very clearly that is we don't have the... Uh, the means, the know-how, the uh, technology to produce our life uh, cheaper, um, it is just not plausible for the electorate to be, and people are not stupid, and they do not need to be told these big, big, big promises. I think that uh, AOC uh, and, and you know, all, all the people pushing for the Green New Deal, um, they should stop promising the impossible, and then they would be more plausible because that agenda is extremely important. How to bridge uh, ecological justice with social justice. This is really what we need to be discussing, and this is not going to be done with empty promises of equality and prosperity uh, forever increasing. Thanks. Uh, I've got a quick question for anyone on the panel, or a few of you. Um, kind of to what extent the US presidential primary right now, the Democrat primary, tells you about any appetite for the left or kind of more left-wing politics among Democrat voters, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but Biden is still the leading candidate in the Democrat primary right now, which seems to go against this idea that Democrat voters are, are more open to left-wing politics. It's shifting a bit. So Biden has been leading, but people like Elizabeth Warren, especially in key states like Iowa and New Hampshire, have been in some polls taking the lead. Interestingly, Bernie Sanders um, doesn't seem like he's cutting through like he did last time. Um, but Elizabeth Warren has adopted a lot of the further left-wing rhetoric. Um, a lot of Trump's rhetoric around economic nationalism and essentially protectionism, anti-globalization. Um, I think what the Democratic primary is telling us right now is that people like AOC have had some influence, but the more interesting question is what the general election will tell us um, between a candidate, say, like Warren and Trump, or Biden and Trump, um, and whether or not there is genuine appetite uh, from people who aren't that politically engaged, but as you say, aren't dumb, uh, and know if they're being promised fantasies or truth, uh, and, and which direction they go in. Thanks. Uh, if anyone else wants to pick up on anything there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm not sure how useful left and right are in understanding American politics right now. I also, I mean, I think the point's been made uh, a couple of times that, you know, what, uh, when AOC talks about um, socialism, that, you know, we're not really talking about socialism. We're talking about, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, national health. You know, I mean, you know, it's as if Britain were socialist, which it's not. Um, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not substantial. And a lot of the people who call themselves socialists now, you know, you talk to them, and uh, it's it's very moralistic. It's not really based on uh, on anything more than that. But but I I think that um, I think that the the interesting thing about the primary is just how sewn up it is. So you get a candidate like Tulsi Gabbard, who I think is interesting because um, I, I, I have talked to a lot of people across the political spectrum who say, yeah, I kind of like her. 
Um, and because I think she's somebody who's articulating something that's not identity politics, um, that um, is a return to sort of centrist way of, of, of looking at things. But you can see how she's being attacked by the Democratic Party establishment. Um, and you know, it just it just gives you it just gives you a sense of how you know you still have these power structures um, uh, in place that are just very difficult to 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 break through. Um, and it's interesting because I think um, just to go back to AOC for a minute, um, it's interesting the conflict between the squad and between somebody like Pelosi because Pelosi is someone who's been in the Senate um, for years and years and really does wield power um, in a in in a, a kind of way, you know, getting things done because it, it, it's an art um, and she's had a lot of experience in it. Um, but the fact that she can't just put um, AOC and the squad in their place um, and just control the agenda just shows that um, uh, that that there is a, 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 a bigger problem for the Democrats and, and a lot more potential for instability. Thanks. Uh, Coming from Indajeep, and then we'll come out to the audience after. Yeah, with the primaries. Um, I mean, just kind of looking at it from outside, Canada Biden has a very large, he may be still in the lead and hanging on by his fingertips, but he is losing the confidence even of Wall Street. And this is a guy who comes from Delaware, where there's about a million corporations paying no tax, and he has been the champion of uh, that kind of thing pretty much the whole of his career. He's got so many problems, and he ain't seen nothing yet. Because if he is adopted as a candidate, not only is he losing corporate money in terms of donations towards his campaign, uh, his son, Hunter Biden, and that job he had with Burisma in Ukraine, a job for which he had no qualifications, uh, and the corruption that kind of sort of washes around uh, Mr. Biden, I think that's going to come to the fore a great deal. The problem is, however, even if Sanders or Warren, I think, were to win the nomination, we go back to 2016 and what happened to Sanders when he lost the nomination. He put everything behind Hillary Clinton. And I think this tells us a great deal about the nature of the Democratic Party and of the two main parties in general. That is, they do have a number of maverick or even unconventional, unorthodox, um, interesting kinds of candidates sometimes representing more than just a maverick individual, but they're very, very good at domesticating them and then mobilizing them behind the party itself. And in a way, the AOCs and the squads and so on, they are irritants to the democratic leadership, but they are also hoovering up large numbers of votes because it says, if you've lost faith in the two main party leaders, leaderships, you've still got these kinds of people in, in part of the party and they are doing a very good job in that regard. So I suspect that uh, whoever wins the nomination, they're going to go much further to the center and probably further to the right in order to compete with President Trump. And that's the problem of this kind of politics in itself. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so we'll go out to the audience again. Yeah, some people have heard me plug it already, but I'm giving a session at 10 o'clock tomorrow on the Green New Deal. But since it's been mentioned so much in relation to AOC, well, I have to say something about it because if you look at the great Green New Deal, you don't need to go into great detail to see it's not some kind of humane 
exercised for prosperity and perhaps a few West Virginia coal miners will suffer. It's an absolute exercise in imposing huge austerity on the American people. So AOC has done this cartoon written by Abby Lewis, uh, which shows a, her in 20 years' time, and it puts the Green New Deal in a very positive light. All these people have got jobs, retrofitting houses, and it's all a nice, clean environment. It all seems really good. But if you read something written on this, if you read, for example, Naomi Klein's book, and Naomi Klein is married to Abby Lewis, who wrote the uh, script for this AOC documentary, uh, cartoon, uh, so very closely related. It's absolutely clear, many, many times in the book, what it talks about is the need to cut consumption. In other words, the need to cut the living standards of American people. And the only way she can claim it's a pro-prosperity agenda is by redefining prosperity to mean something else other than consumption. So yes, if you want to, you can say, yes, I think austerity is a good thing. You can make that argument. But I don't think you can legitimately make the argument that the Green New Deal is a positive way forward that will bring prosper prosperity for the American people, because the only way it will do that is by some kind of conjuring trick where you redefine prosperity to mean something entirely different, to mean its opposite. So AOC, the squad, Sanders in general, um, I think generally represents sort of a paradigm shift in the Democratic Party at least in the fact that it's starting to split. Um, I think generally the, the two-party system in America isn't super representational of the fact of the entire political spectrum in general. Um, just within each party, you have massive libertarian and authoritarian sects, and that's just you know within just the, uh, the up-down. Ignoring the fact that Democratic Party really goes center-right all the way to extreme left, so you have huge splits there. Um, so I'm just sort of wondering. How can the fact that far, far left candidates are starting to actually get some level of success, are able to start influencing the actual, um, at least sections of the Northeast and the West Coast, um, but are having a hard time in the, in the Midwest and sort of middle America if it exists. Um, what does that say about the future of the Democratic Party and subsequently later on the Republican Party as it's also starting to split? Are they gonna be able to sort of survive that or are the parties themselves gonna start having to split uh, overall? Uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to say anything until Kate mentioned rural Pennsylvanians, and I'm a rural Pennsylvanian, so I think it's <laughs> my job to... Um, she really, AOC does really uh, represent something absurd. In, in many ways, she's the Democratic Party version of Sarah Palin. You know, we get, we get, these, we get these, these political pinup girls who, generally speaking don't go much farther than that. And then Nancy mentioning Tulsi Gabbard, who is all substance in addition to whatever she brings to the table. But what I do find particularly egregious about what's happened is how much the media has framed AOC as a budding superstar when while they destroyed Sarah Palin for having essentially the same lack of, of substance and knowledge of, of how things work. And it's particularly, it was particularly galling to see her, her just grilling Zuckerberg, um, was it last week, where she absolutely had no, first of all, she wouldn't let the man speak, number one. Number two, she kept asking him questions that had nothing to do with Facebook's place in social media. And then you look back and see what happens to Palin. Tina Fey, essentially destroyed Sarah Palin as, as a public figure. You can't look at Sarah Palin any longer without seeing Tina Fey doing her little preening around the stage. And yet, Saturday Night Live doesn't touch AOC. 
In fact, they've made it very clear that democratic politics are off the table, and yet Alec Baldwin is on every week playing the role of President Trump. It's, it's pretty remarkable, and yet the similarities there are absolute, in my mind at least. Um, in, in many ways, the only thing that, that makes AOC remotely democratic is, and this is what Daniel was saying, the only thing about her that, that, says, that connects her to the Democratic Party is that how ban-happy it is. I mean, every, every debate, every conversation with the Democratic um, part of this primaries is they each tries to out-ban the other. Right, the, the Republicans want to deregulate everything. The Democrats want to ban everything. And there's Tulsi Gabbard in the middle saying, "Can we please have a, an adult moment here?" And nobody wants to say they, they want to defend her against against the, the the you know the slights and whatever it was that Hillary Clinton said about her. But but as far as the, the substance of what she's saying, what what's fi what's fascinating about the Democrats and why the only reason that that. AOC would be a Democrat is because of the banning. I think uh, the gentleman over here was right. There, there really is too much going on. There's too many divisions to have have parties uh, have American politics represented by two parties any longer. And I think this is part of the problem is that we can't seem to find out where the different p positions on the political spectrum lie. So, um, based on what you, the panel was saying, it seems that uh, Cortez um, draws from a um, from a um, middle-class identity, middle-class environmentalist kind of discourse, um, and from, from the middle classes rather than from the working classes. Um, that uh, looks to me like what's happening with the Corbyn movement, who, after the, 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 the recent uh, Labour conferences, is clear that he has abandoned uh, uh, the working class and its, and its democratic uh, decision-making, and it's, and it's drawing on the middle-class uh, uh, cosmopolitan London um, 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 crowd. Um, uh, and uh, if that happens, if that is also the way that the American left is, is going towards, then we are talking about abandonment of the working classes and which makes them vulnerable to the right, which we have evidence from, for that, as they have drawn, they've been drawn to Trump. Trump may win again as a response to the further abandoning of the working classes by the left, and that may very well happen, I think, in the, in the next general election here in the UK, uh, when we see the results and the defeat of a, of a, of a Corbyn-led Labour Party, which I, 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 I think will happen. So the issue is about the left uh, abandoning the working class and the working class being an easy target for the right. Thanks. Um, obviously, panelists can come in on anything they want from that, but I was wondering, does anyone on the panel support AOC's Green New Deal? Because there's been some, lots of criticism of it. No? Uh, well, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean... Anyone like to try and defend the... Uh, yeah. say anybody like... I think there is a, there's two things. One is the politics of the Green New Deal as a, something put forward by the, some, a lot of people in the Democratic Party. And you could go back to the 1930s and talk about the problems of the New Deal itself. But to deny the importance of climate change, to challenge that as a fundamental problem of our age, and then to sort of to see that it is in fact going to have to deal, uh, lead to major changes in the, way, in the whole ideology of economic growth, and of consumption, I think to deny all that is to deny a major problem 
which is objectively real. So that whether or not the Green New Deal actually is effective in doing very much about that is a secondary question to what seems to be an underlying problem as expressed by some of the people speaking here is that the whole idea of climate science is a problem. The fact is that it used to be called global warming until the mid-1990s when various Republican strategists and uh, wordsmiths began to try to shift the agenda away from that to what is now called climate change or, or climate science or whatever. So there are large numbers of people who are going to, to suffer from it. The big problem is not that there's going to be a big, has to be a big change. It, the issue is how do you manage the transition such that jobs which are, which are involved in coal mining and many other fossil fuel industries and big corporations which are making very large amounts of money out of that, how are we going to transition away from an economy like that towards one which is much more kind of a sustainable and so on? So economic growth consumption. The, the gentleman spoke about consumption and how this is an austerity measure. In the United States, about 40% of the population goes into financial crisis if a sudden $400 cost lands on their doorstep. We're talking about groups of people who are not consuming very much at all. So there's large numbers of people who have got a position in that society which is very precarious. That's the big problem here, is to con the construction of an economy for the future which deals with those sorts of people as well. And not for you know, very big corporations like the Coke Industries and others, which have been making very large amounts of money out of all this. Thanks. Uh, you mentioned precarity. Um, so that's something you've written a book about, Albena. So maybe it's... Something. Yes, we, we were... Uh, just um, uh, coming to the idea that uh, the Green New Deal, you know, what what I find is is the error of the way the package is sold to the public is promising is is with the big promises. It's not with the reality of the pro of the issues it addresses. So what my my concern is simply that um, there is so much overpromising of prosperity. And this is based on the belief that people insist on that prosperity. I th at least my work, um, my research that went into the my new book, which is coming out in December, is that, um, and I have looked at um, interviews with uh, the Yellow Vests uh, protesters, the concerns are not with being middle class and affluent. And, 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 and taking your uh, exotic vacations concerns us with, with precarity. So as long as people's um, lives are stable, they would accept sacrifices in order to uh, address issues with climate change. Uh, the Yellow Vests, this, this has been consistently their response, that we do care about the environment, the issue is with the precariousness of our lives. So my advice would be to shift uh, away from promising prosperity and focusing on fighting precarity. There are resources for that, and that's a big shift. Thanks. Nancy? Well, I think one of the frustrating things is that um, not just the U.S. economy, but all of our economies do need to be restructured. Um, and we do need to... Um, uh, we do need to, to come up with, uh, with different 
forms of energy. We need to revitalize our industry. Um, we need to uh, create the basis for people to have a future. And the problem with uh, the Green New Deal and with a lot of these critiques is that they're very moralistic. And what it ends up being, it ends up being um, uh, a sort of thing that is imposed on people. Um, so it's it's like it's like the 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 world is the world is burning, um, and you should care about this without actually um, without actually uh, 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 appealing to people and giving them um, uh, a way that they can see see that this is a way this needs to be done not just about climate change but about revitalizing our lives. Um, and, and and our future, um, and it, and it and it and it it needs it needs to be done together. I mean, the the the, the issues with the American economy are so serious um, that there is absolutely no way that you can solve them without the cooperation and the knowledge and the commitment of the American people. Um, you can't just you know kind of come and impose these uh, solutions on people. Um, especially if it's you know if it's if it's going to um, to hurt them and expect them to go along with it. I mean, right now you know there are there are uh, there are uh, serious there's a serious situation with cities collapsing, um, and people are desperately trying to kind of keep them going, and would and will go to you know extraordinary lengths to try and preserve their lives um, and to have a future in the places that they live. And it's being completely ignored um, by mainstream politicians, um, and uh, and you know so not only not only <laughs> does the Green New Deal not address any of that, but it actually becomes a sort of um, a sort of stick to beat people with, um, I think. And I, and I I really I really think it's unlikely um, that it has the the um, uh, appeal to make anyone beyond the elite really support it. Thanks. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left, so kind of quickly, then we'll go back out to the yeah, audience. Sure. Well, I, I was just going to put in a bit of skepticism here around sort of polling about what people will and will not accept. So, you know, if you say, well, if people's lives are more stable, then, um, you know, they'll accept certain sacrifices. Well, you know, let's put it to them. Um, if it has to be through control, if it has to be through a top-down approach, if it has to be through banning things, um, let's actually put it to them. And let's not forget that the reason that these big corporations that do pollute make a lot of money is because normal people are buying their products, they're buying cars, they're flying on planes. They're doing all kinds of activity, which does increase consumption and increases living standards, but does have trade-offs. We need to talk about trade-offs in all of these circumstances. And um, I know I, I don't support the Green New Deal because there's no discussion of trade-offs. It is all about what they're going to ban, what they're going to tax, which is always going to be regressive in principle and have the biggest impact on the poorest group of people. And it's almost as if giving, giving them back some kind of moral prosperity, saying, well, you know, you are you're worse off, you're poorer, because we haven't actually accounted for any of these trade-offs, but you can feel good about yourself, probably isn't quite good enough, especially not for the American people where, you know, they've grown up with the philosophy that you should do better than your parents, you will be richer than your parents, and if you're not, something's gone badly wrong. Um, and just really quickly, because there's been a lot of chat about sort of the split in the 
in the major parties. Um, and this has been going on for a long time. I mean, it's not just AOC. We saw the rise of Ron Paul, who was a libertarian within the Republican Party, who was hugely successful in bringing young people into that movement. Um, but never underestimate tribal politics. And I think what we saw in 2016 is that for all the disgust with Trump on the right and for all the frustrations with Hillary Clinton on the left, voters came home. They came back to the party that they registered to uh, in really, really big blocks. And I'm not one to usually talk about rigged political systems because I actually think that's usually an excuse to say, I don't like that the other person won. Let me come up with reasons why they did. But um, the American system does have an issue that it is very difficult for third parties to have their voices heard in any meaningful way. And a lot of the rules are built in so that those people struggle to get a platform. Um, and that is something I think on the left and right now you could probably find consensus for addressing. Thanks. Uh, so we're going to very quickly come back out to the audience. I really agree with the point that Albania made, and, and I, I think it's a real problem about the uh, magical thinking around the Green New Deal, but around a lot of policies where you confront um, people can confront a kind of a, a contradiction in their political appeal. They say, oh, well, look, um, uh, if we solve the climate thing, it, it's going to lead to austerity. And then somebody in a room says, well, look, let, let's just kind of reverse this discourse and say, let's pretend that the... Um, the austerity measures that we envisage as necessary to confront the climate problem uh, will be the opposite, and that somehow that uh, you know retrofitting my um, um, insulation is going to create more jobs. It's not. I mean, it, 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 there's a kind of if you. It may be that you know in a sort of 70-year time frame you could see a kind of massive transformation of uh, energy production, uh, but in a 20-year time frame, there's only two possibilities. Either you don't fix the environment uh, and you have growth, or you do fix the environment and you have severe disruption of the economy. Uh, so the, I think the Extinction Rebellion position is more honest, is that if, you, if, you're, if what we're saying about um, climate change is right, that's going to be a profound disruption of the uh, economy. If they're exaggerating and that you could have a much um, uh, a, a gentler um, uh, transformation. It's a long time uh, doing. Alex Dean, uh, the panel has made the argument that the, ex the perceived extremes, Trump and AOC, have more in common than the uh, moderates in between them. That's happened in our country, but not in Westminster, but in Northern Ireland, where Ian Paisley on the one hand and Martin McGuinness and uh, Gerry Adams on the other basically uh, totally destroyed and absorbed uh, the UUP, uh, who were the moderate side on the unionists, uh, and the SDLP, who were the moderates under Sinn Féin. Um, I now, of, of course, that was religious and nationalistic rather than otherwise, rather than the other kinds of identity politics, but it's still identity politics that made them the extremes. The difference in the comparison is that they then came together on common ground for a peace deal and in Northern Ireland. And I suppose my question is, is there a peace deal between the extremes that you as a panel have identified? And if not, what does this kind of polarisation mean? If, if once you've absorbed, you've eaten all the young on your own side, what does it mean uh, once you've dominated your, your position enough to be the only animal in the room? What happens next? You've all seemed to have identified there's not much support in the middle America, if you will, for AOC and these ideas. So I was wondering, do you think that might change if some kind of crisis, either economic, environmental or other, could occur? Would a crisis start to push people towards these more radical ideas? Or is that not something you envisage in the near future? 
Thanks. Uh, so each of our panellists, you have uh, about one minute each. I thought it was a really good question about the extremes and ID polit identity politics. Is there a peace deal? I think if there is a peace deal, it'll probably be brought about by some sort of major crisis. That is a crisis which basically derives from whatever source, but which has such a profound effect that it unites people around their core concerns, which in the end, in my own mind, and with, a, you know, with due respect for identity and the importance of identity politics, that in the end, it's the way in which people live, how they earn their money, what kind of stability in their family lives, the possibility of a future with some sort of economic security, those kind of questions are fundamental. And they're fundamental to people who vote for both parties in, in practice. And, and I would think that somebody's talked about the disruptions of the Green New Deal and dealing with climate change. But the fact is this: the American economy, the American stock market, and quantitative easing is heading towards something pretty bad in the next few years, maybe worse than 2008. We're going to get that crisis as a result of some of the dynamics of financialization and the power of the financial groups to do more or less what they please, which they're now doing after being bailed out 10, 12 years ago. So there is a big crisis coming, and it could well be economic, financial, but it could be other as well, the polarization kind of based around race and culture. But there is a big crisis or series of crises coming. A peace deal. Um, it would have to be something which united people on the way in which their livelihoods are to be earned and gained and their economic security to be, to be assured. Thanks. I don't think it lies on the ground of identity politics. Thanks. Nancy? Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people there is already a crisis. Um, it's just a crisis that hasn't been um, uh, recognized by uh, the whole of society. Um, and uh, and I, I, I think that um, I, there, it, it's almost as if people are so desperate um, to have anyone listen um, and, uh, and take their concerns seriously that, I mean, I really feel like that is what is behind Trump. Trump is not trying to, to build a movement. Trump is just saying, he's, he's saying what people want to hear. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people who don't, particularly have a lot of faith in Trump, um, but he's the only person, the only politician um, who is actually acknowledged, you know, that they, that they, um, uh, that they are, in, are, are in crisis. Um, and there are, I think there's an untapped section of people who didn't vote for Trump, but are not um, happy with the Democrats either. And I think that if you could have, um, or and I think you probably will have. I think there has to be uh, an opposition that um, is not based on identity politics. Um, that is based on um, that is based on on a, a vision of America that um, uh, pulls people together. I think there's so much potential for that. Um, it's just hard to see where it would come from. Thanks, Abena. Um, yeah, just to clarify, the very interesting phenomenon that the people who voted for these uh, minority women, they voted for them not because they were minority women, but because they were representing an anti-establishment position on economic policy. So there is a shift, in fact, from uh, identity politics to, uh, to uh, economic policy. 
And that's a very welcome shift. So we'll see how far that will go, because the battle um, now, um, I mean, we, we see that very quickly both parties, the mainstreams of the both parties, are turning to the economy. So what would be left for the fringes? Uh, would it be, again, this kind of a class, class struggle that they're resurrecting with the tax the rich uh, discourse? Or would it be something more interesting, like fighting precarity for all? Thank you. Um, Kate. Um, to the question about what could move people f towards or, or further away from AOC's politics, rarely is it the case that these kinds of trends um, can rely on, you know, just one moment or, or just, just one instance in, in history. But I actually think the way that the 2020 election pans out is going to matter a lot because I think if somebody like Joe Biden becomes the nominee and he wins, I actually think we're going to go back to something much more normal looking in American politics. It doesn't mean that the AOCs will lose all traction, but I think they'll actually lose a lot. And we may, you know, go back 15 or 20 years in terms of the way that things were going there. In terms of um, Alex's excellent question about a peace treaty, um, I think it's less likely to happen in America um, uh, because our system almost already accounts for it, that we have this process of checks and balances in which uh, someone can hold the most radical views in the world, and it doesn't mean that they get to sweep the nation with them. Uh, you already have this system brokered in, which isn't necessarily peaceful in political terms, but means that everything gets watered down more and more and more to the point where sometimes it's nearly impossible to do anything. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe in certain areas, like drug reform, people like Donald Trump and AOC could find a peace treaty, but I think the system itself allows for that water down um, process to occur. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts and subscribe to them, visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast. Mm -hmm.